0: Hey friends, happy new year and welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 97. My guest today is Brendan Kwiatkowski. He runs the Instagram re.masculate. Brendan is a researcher in masculinity he has been a teacher now he's a PhD candidate and his focus is on adolescent males levels of emotional restriction and so we talked a lot about the pressures that males face we talked about trust versus vulnerability identity and sense of purpose for men and ultimately the masks that we put on to try and be cool and be tough and be what the world around us seems to require of men all of which actually leads to fragmentation. So Brendan is a is a really compassionate, wise heart with a ton of research and experience behind him. So thankful to be able to share his wisdom with you. Sit back and enjoy uh, episode 97 of the podcast with Brendan Kwiatkowski. I don't actually remember, Brendan, when I started following you or how exactly we crossed paths, I assume, and I I presume, I think this is most likely that I stumbled upon someone else's stories who was sharing your, your stuff. That's almost certainly how I, how I found you. But from the get go, I was like, oh, I, I am loving this guy's vibe. (laughs) So uh, let me just say right off the bat, thank you for the time. Thank you for joining me here today. And I'm I'm really honored and excited that we can get to discuss some of these things around masculine identity and formation, and and the research-backed uh, masculine understanding, and and so on. So I'm I'm pumped and thankful. Oh, I'm pumped as well. Thanks so much for having me. I uh, just just as way of of context for my interest, I was one of those guys who grew up struggling to fit in with. The cultural masculine norms that were around me. I know. I I don't know. I I feel like when men sit down and actually get honest, we all say that. I feel like Mm. every single one of us, like, yeah, not not one of us fit in. But I'm like, yeah, but all the Brads and the Chads, they all seemed to like have it going on, and uh, I, I, you know, I I certainly felt like I was not fitting the mold. And in New Zealand, where where I grew up, uh, my childhood, you know, it was this very At the time, I'm I'm aware that it's starting to change, but at the time, it was this very macho, stoic male culture uh, where men didn't cry, where men didn't uh, give hugs, where men didn't ask for help, where the only kind of emotions that were permitted were like anger and maybe happiness. So long as your happiness wasn't like too over the top, because then then you're just a bit much Mm -hmm. and. And so I often kind of just felt like, how do I fit into this thing? And and for many years, I just was like, I don't get this male picture. And uh, it was interesting, even just as I was prepping today and reading through some of your notes on your website, I saw you you point out like these particular things that are most damaging to like male identity formation, and it's like toughness, the inability to ask for help. And I'm like, oh wow, you pretty much um, the cultural definition of masculinity that I grew up with was the worst. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I'd love to hear just right off the bat a bit about what what it is that you are so passionate about and why, why we should care about men and, and masculinity. Um, and then maybe some of how, how you got there.
1: Yeah, for sure. And just one thing you said there is that in all my research, I've only met one boy who who was aware of the pressures of masculinity around him, but never felt the pressures himself. So I found one boy who just feels like I didn't struggle with my masculinity, but every Fun. other single boy um, Amazing. definitely has. And even the typical Chad's jocks versus the ones that um, were more isolated with. And often they were like in musical theater or in band, things like that. That
0: was me, musical theater. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So like we all do struggle with it. And one of the things is that um, within masculinity is that there is always like this striving or this pressure to be the certain ideal. I know you wrote a book called I Am Enough, but like, are you man enough? It's a constant proving thing, um, which creates stress and strain in and of itself because it's, it's never ending. Um, even for those that appear to have achieved it. Um, and so I think, yeah, one, one of the reasons why this is such an important topic, um, if I had to boil it down to everything, to everything is that it harmful, restrictive messages of masculinity create a fragmentation of oneself, mm-hmm. a dehumanization, a disembodiment from one's full sense of self. Um, if you can't fully express your emotions, you, you numb all of your emotions, even the positive ones, like joy, you can't feel as strongly if you're numbing sadness and that's breaking you apart from yourself and the fullness of what it means, I believe, to be alive, to be human. And at the more extreme ends, it causes you to dehumanize other people. Mm. Um, And so if you view the feminine as weak and that females primarily have feminine traits, Um, that you view as lesser that can for sure lead to sexism, lead to misogyny and things like that. But, um, yeah, the three most harmful restrictive messages in the research are telling boys and men that you need to need to restrict your emotions, particularly fear and sadness that you need to do things yourself and that you need to be tough, um, or cool, kind of this ideal of cool. Um, And the thing I want to clarify is that women, girls, many, like those can also be a result of trauma and that is not gender or sex specific as well, but the ideals of masculinity tend to encourage those three messages. And that's why I want to hone in on, on the masculinity part and how that affects boys and men, because there's something substantial there. That's more, more pointed than what females experience um, overall.
0: Yes, yeah, and that was categorically my childhood, right? Like, don't be afraid, like you know. And that would be the talk on the playground: Are you chicken? Are you are you a loser? Are you gay? Like, you know, all all that language.
1: Yeah, and it's so um, it's so embedded in our own stories. And looking back and being like, me and my best friend. Um, which are these best men in our weddings. Um, Our mutual friend had a dream about us when we were in high school and had a dream that we were gay and that one of us was pregnant with the other one's baby. And, and we were, we didn't want to be deemed as gay. And moreover, we didn't want to be the one that was pregnant because that would be even more for sure. (laughs) And so like that, Started an eight-year competition about who, like we would always say, like, "Oh, you're more girly than I am," for the next eight years, and finally, we, kind of a joke, but kind of, there's elements underlying that were like, "Yeah, I don't want to be more girly than you," and then finally, when we matured and grew up, we we ended it in you know, each other's best man speeches. <laughs> but these things are so salient um, in everyone's life, and that's why I think this topic—I know it's controversial. Um, of talking about gender, about sex, about masculinity. Um, But I find what's so powerful about it is that when people start looking at gendered messages that they've experienced or that they've um, portrayed onto other people and look back on their life in retrospect, they realize, oh my goodness, there was ways that I was not allowed to be my full self Mm -hmm. and that realizing that I believe is so healing and so powerful. And that's really why I'm invested in this. I could also say that like the the death rate for male suicide and that I have had a couple of male students die from suicide in my experience and just knowing other men that have, um, that's something that motivates me um, for sure, but it's not, I think sometimes people use suicide statistics as like all the evidence, to point, I don't know, they make huge claims based on the evidence, like females actually um, attempt suicide seven times more than men. It's the methods that men go about Mm -hmm. suicide um, that often creates the higher fatality rate. And so, yeah, I want people to live their full lives. And I think that masculinity is a great lens to look at.
0: Yeah, seriously. I mean, you know, Add adding to that color, you know, for me, which again, I'm just hearing so many touch points in, in your journey and in your interest. My father is gay. And I remember when he came out, I was 18 and it was, or 17. And it was this, this other whole color to somehow now try and try and figure out. And, and I had never dealt with any of those masculine tensions. I had just pushed it all aside. Mm. And then I got married and and had to throw that into the mix. and, uh, you know, and my father also had multiple suicide attempts unsuccessfully mm-hmm. earlier in his life. And so all all that stuff was a was a backdrop for, for me, whether I knew it or not. Right. And, and I think from as you pointed out, all but one <laughs> male uh, feels this pressure. But I think, again, one of the th- ways that we're cut off at the knees is the inability to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, certainly you don't want to be the first one in the circle to admit, you know, cause what if the other guys don't back you up and then you're, then you're out there alone.
1: Yeah. There's a sense of all the boys in my research, um, a sense that I'm alone in this, but I'm talking to all these boys, interviewing them all individually, being like, Hey, every boy is actually thinking the same thing that they're not sure what the other boy thinks. And so then they portrayed, yeah, what's actually being portrayed about like this masculine toughness, coolness, It is just a facade that other boys are all keeping up this idea. Um, And to your point about fathers is that I have never in any research personally I've done or that I've read is that like fathers, the relationship with the fathers, even if the father's absence is one of the most biggest, most significant factors of how someone views their own masculinity Mm -hmm. and their sense of what it means to be a man. So the role of fathers is huge and paramount. And it's great that you've been able to assess how that has all impacted you as well.
0: Certainly. Yeah. You know, later, once I began to understand and and journey with that stuff. Um, so maybe walk us through uh, how you kind of got here a little bit. Some, some of your, your, maybe your early formation, what that looks like. And then obviously I know you, that you have been or are a teacher and, and are now doing this PhD research. Put Brendan in, in the story for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, I really have to jump into it when I was like 24 (laughs) because I would say I was a, I'd never really thought much about gender. And I was doing my master's in special education, students with emotional and behavioral difficulties and found out that 81% of students diagnosed with emotional behavioral difficulties are male. Mm -hmm. And we could get into whether females are underdiagnosed, which I think they are um but re- looking at why is that gender dis- discrepancy there and then that I actually approach it from a research perspective of oh the research behind restrictive messages the masculinity is one explanation for why boys um, have more externalized behaviors in schools and that led me down just a whole like oh gender let's look at back in my life about this and then when I looked back One of my earliest memories of gender was from the church and looking at the bulletin in the morning growing up and confused, like seeing the pastors and then the children's coordinator, which was always a a woman and just asking my parents, like, why are they not pastors? And, and so the church really highlighted that the church I went to um, that Something was different about females. They couldn't be leaders and pastors in the same way as males. And I can extrapolate a lot of those different stories and experiences. um, Realizing that like, oh my goodness, I can understand myself better. When I think about how gender has impacted my life and those around me.
0: Certainly. Yeah. Right. That's so interesting. The church, the church thing, right? That one of your first, wow. Wasn't that a tragic indictment on the body of Christ that one of your earliest defining gender experiences was, you know, essentially the subjugation of women in a relig- in a spiritual context? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, I mean, I've been doing a study on John recently, the gospel of John, and it just the elevation and honor that Jesus shows women in his culture. And we've created this religion today where the exact opposite happens to the point where those are certain individuals, plenty of people's formative experiences of gender and what gender differences are. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like what what have we done?
1: Yeah, I think the church is um, is, is ripe with something called gender essentialism of not, we're not talking about physical qualities between men and women, but that there's you could say spiritual qualities that make men leaders and not women, that women are nurturers and not men, or at least more so than men. And yeah, and I think that really is um, harmful and hurtful. And I I know that in my the boys I've interviewed, um, those with religious upbringings definitely are way more familiar with kind of those gender stereotypes. Um, if you think of, I remember all like the father's day Sundays versus the mother day Sundays, there's lots of like gender messages about men e- eating bacon all the time. Like, it's just like, it's the easy joke to make gender stereotype sure. things. And for pastors to do that, it's, it's an easy way to get laughs and no one really assesses like, Hey, but men can be nurturing too. Women totally. can be
0: and women love bacon. I have yeah. a friend. I'm not going to say her name on air because that wouldn't be fair. But I have a friend who, true story, ended up hospitalized due to bacon consumption. I shouldn't be <laughs> laughing. That... she gives us permission to laugh.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> um, okay. So you touched on again the nurturing thing, and that's obviously a classic role that that women get played into, and that was again part of part of my own difficulty in growing up as you know someone. Who identifies very strongly with that those Enneagram Two nurturing traits. Uh, I I am a very tender, compassionate, nurturing man. Mm. And it's I've really only bec- made become comfortable with that in probably the last five years of my life, mm. or even four. Like basically in my 30s, w- have I really been given permission to own that's who Jonathan is. And Jonathan's allowed to be that. Mm and jonathan is not deficient because of that thank you for your silent hand clap i appreciate it and and in my marriage it's interesting because my wife uh is it, w- it would be the enneagram 8 and so she is much more uh, kind of large and in charge and uh and and that that's great we 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 have learned to work with that um it's it's good but we both had challenges in in our ear- in earlier in our marriage and and in our own identity and formation of understanding how all these pieces fit together um you shared some research earlier in the year about testosterone levels mm. and and how men respond to babies crying could you just hi- highlight that us quickly if you recall it because i was just so intrigued by that
1: yeah testosterone research i find super fascinating and it's very hard to unpack because your testosterone levels change throughout the day even so um, so there's spikes and dips all the all the time. Um, so it's very hard to make like there's very little causal relationship that like testosterone leads to to violence or aggression, higher levels. That actually isn't clear. Um, there is some indication that for boys, higher testosterone levels lead to more movement, more yeah motion. But anyways, it's so it's hard to interpret definitively. But in this research, they found that when uh, males who were the caregivers for the child, when they heard a baby cry, they their levels of testosterone changed depending on their response to that crying. So if they responded to the baby crying to go coddle, to nurture, then their testosterone levels dropped. Hmm. And if they ignored the baby crying, then their testosterone levels increased and spiked. And so there's lots of different conclusions you could make from that. I think one safe one to make is just to consider for the people who think everything is biology or innate in men to be a certain way or not, to challenge that and just be like how you respond to things um, and epigenetically can influence how kind of, you, kind of, yeah, how your, your behaviors, and your responses can also influence your behaviors yet again, and there's lots of different cycles at play.
0: Yeah, that's so intriguing to me uh, on on multiple levels. the f- the The first one that comes to mind is is this idea that our the our choice of response actually has uh, chemical, neurological, mm. physiological ramifications in our own body. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for at a surface level to be like, okay, I'm going to choose to go and be nice to that person. And thus that, or, or to care for this child or to be responsive to my wife. And thus my child will benefit and thus my spouse will benefit. And, and I won't be a stick in the mud, useless man sitting here on the couch. Uh, but that it, it actually influences me quite significantly that I, I yeah, I'm, I'd be so intrigued to learn more about, what that how, yeah, how that works in terms of why the choice to engage in a nurturing act influences that particular you know hormone or of, of all of them. Um, the the other sorry, the other thought that comes to my mind is just, when I was first starting to really learn as an adult about my emotions, uh, I read this this book by my friend uh, Mark Shelsky, who I talk a lot about on the show here, The Wisdom of Your Heart. My listeners will have heard me talk about this. And, and he said, for him, all strong emotion felt like anger. Hmm. He had never been given the granular understanding of all these different things. And so so what would manifest in him like a like a pit in his stomach and a churning in his guts? was the only identifiable emotion he could pin down. And and anything of high intensity felt like anger. And I think I've definitely had some of that too, where it's felt like anytime I've encountered high intensity emotion, it has felt like a threat to me, Mm -hmm. regardless of, of what the emotion is. The intensity is what triggers me and if i have a correlation in my own body and in my story and mind that when my testosterone is up and i feel that rush of kind of masculine intense energy perhaps coupled with adrenaline and strength and kind of a you know the urge to move if i have if the only interpretation of that physiological response that i have is violence and anger doesn't mean those things cause violence or anger, but if that's the only narrative that I've been given for that sensation mm-hmm. in my body, then I could hurt a child that I don't mean to. And I can get really confused about am I a good man? Am I a good father? Why did I fly off the handle when my child cried? Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole mess of shame and condemnation that we can put on ourselves if we only have one narrative for certain sensations in our body. So that's not what you, like, that's, that's what comes to my mind when, when you bring that up.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of my master's work. I did a year long social emotional intervention for boys with um, behavioral needs. A lot of these boys were getting suspended. Some of them even got expelled while I was working with them, but that was the number one thing. Is that I got in a private and a counselor to speak to them and talk about emotions in kind of a group setting. And they often would just describe that they're kind of feeling fine, normal, numb, something happens, and then it's just immediately rage. Um, It's immediately their fight response. And the most helpful thing for them was something called the window of tolerance, which is like picture a window where you have the optimal zone where you can like, you have ups and downs of your emotions, but you can still make like prefrontal cortex. There's still blood flow going there because you're, you're making decisions based on uh, reasoning based on emotions, but conscious not choice. controlled. Yeah. Conscious choice. Thanks. Um, and so a lot of it is just realizing like for most of the time, anger is a secondary emotion, but then it's really giving them language about what other emotions exist and other feelings that could exist to help them get into their bodies to name like, Oh, I'm like, I feel my hands raging and being able to identify when they might be leaving their window of tolerance so that they can make um, better choices. And so for one boy, that was like, you know what, when my mom gets mad at me, I just stare and I don't say anything and it's changed my life because I haven't punched, I haven't broken any fingers punching a locker in like two months. And that was his big takeaway from it. Um, so I think what you said there is that the manifestation of anger, um, yeah, it's huge. And I love what you said about without knowing yourself and your full range of emotions, every emotion might seem as a threat because it's vulnerable and v- And you can make an argument that some aspect of that is survival instinct, but most of us aren't living in a hunter-gatherer type environment. Um, We as a society are at a point where most of us, um, the exception, I would say, of some people living in in prison or some people, boys, children living in households where it's not safe for them to fully be vulnerable. Um, But for most everyone else, um, we don't need to have that survival response to our emotions, and it's yeah maladaptive for our flourishing and for those around us.
0: Absolutely. Can you um maybe unpack a little bit more of some of the pressures males face? I know even as I was making the notes for this, I I had this thing, and and I I wonder if you deal with this, where it's kind of like, oh man, are, are we really talking about males having a hard time in in this? cultural climate of the last few years like is, is this the best we can do but obviously holistically this is a big part of the reason that like you just said males have been developing maladaptive behaviors um so for someone maybe who's sitting there going okay maybe i'm not a male or maybe i i don't really get what the problems are mm-hmm. um can you even in your in your research come some of the challenges that that young men and teenage boys are, are facing
1: i would say that a common refrain in my own Research And I should just say, what my research is, is that I I gave a survey to grade 12 boys in an area in British Columbia, and 170 grade 12 boys, a survey about their em- levels of emotional restriction. And then I interviewed the 10 comparatively least emotionally restricted boys, and I compared that to the masculinities of the 10 most emotionally restricted boys. And whether you're mostly emotionally restricted or not, um, all boys felt, all boys except that one, felt the pressures of masculinity. And this, one of the saddest refrains is that they became something that they were not. Um, Boys, but they were so aware of it they're like, I have become the mask that I pretend that I will. I become the mask that I pretend to have worn. And now it just feels genuine. Mm. But there is, for all the boys who are the most emotionally restricted, they all identified a time period of something of that happening. None of them were just like, oh, this is who I am. All of them identified specific events in their life um, that started I don't want to say their descent into emotional restriction. Um, but it, it makes sense. Like, I don't want so. to shame any of those boys for that response. It makes sense with what their lives gave at them that at that time.
0: It um, became necessary,
1: right? It became, yeah, it became necessary for sure. But then you also have boys sharing that, like, yeah, they their friend group, maybe they get into to fights with other people or things like that. But you got to keep up this sense of coolness, of toughness um i had a couple of boys just like lamenting about like how much it sucks that girls only like the guys that portray this image and i'm not trying i'm trying not to do that but i find it hard because i want girls to be interested in me and yeah and and being having all this swagger this flex um is social currency and I want to have some of that social currency. So I see a lot of boys just stuck. Um, another boy who says like, I know expressing emotions is important. They've told us that now, which is great. They tell us we can go cry now. And then it's kind of sarcastically. He's like, great, but I don't know how to, I don't. Know. And I think the best, Thing from my research is just how attuned that all these boys are super aware of emotional dynamics in their lives, whether they are able to express those or not. They're very mm-hmm. aware of them. So this notion, this stereotype that boys don't um, don't have emotions, um, they're aware that there's more things going on, and boys want to talk, not always to their parents, and not always. Yeah, not always, but boys, if you get them talking, they often don't shut up, and I think that's great. So I think we need to create spaces for boys to be able to share. I'm not sure if that really answered your question. That kind of went Oh, that's
0: that's that's great. It's so good. When we lived in Finland, it was a really interesting kind of cultural, masculine exposition for us to kind of observe, because as an entire culture, they are not known for emotional expression. And... Uh, Obviously, you have all these different pockets of Europe with all these different kinds of emotional norms in, in terms of expression. And people have drawn lines in terms of cold countries and warm countries, and there's lots of different stuff there. But what was especially noticeable in terms of masculinity was that Finnish men would not really express much emotion or even much opinion on anything Unless they were drunk, or in the sauna, and uh, most Finns have a sauna in their home. It's totally normal. It's a regular part of your kind of weekly bathing routine. And so, probably on average, I think most Finns would take sauna four to five times a week, depending. But um, and that was absolutely fascinating to me. To be making friends in a new culture, crossing cultural barriers, language barriers, all those kinds of things, trying to insert myself as a friend and and become a member of a functional community and having to kind of navigate. I feel like Canadian, let's, if we, if I don't know, maybe I'll I'll paint a really broad stroke here, but when I go back to New Zealand, even now, I go in for a hug and the New Zealanders are kind of like, oh, oh, you're very Canadian with your hugs. And so I feel like probably Canadians are maybe kind of in this, this warm middle area leaning towards a little more expressive than a little less. That, that would be my analysis of the kind of the Canadian average. But, but mm-hmm. I know that I'm pretty far to that one side for my own. self. So. Um, you can agree or disagree. Uh, but, but having, you know, sitting in a living room trying to make friends trying to converse and frequently feeling rebuffed or like I don't understand how to communicate or um or offering like I my typical mode of intimacy is to offer vulnerability first mm. and uh, and to essentially be offered nothing in return. not not even we hear you and see you and understand you just a complete blankness. yeah, it's tough. Right. It was tough, but yet, but then a few hours roll on and we've gone to the pub and now suddenly there's a looseness and they're, and, and, and they've now actually dropped into a much more vulnerable, intimate comfort level than, than even I was offering. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then this, again, whether they were, uh, I, I don't mean to go that we went from the pub to the sauna because that would imply alcohol kind of maybe as the sole issue but but you could you could swap that out and be like okay we've gone to the sauna we're all but us naked we're sitting here sweating in the heat and somebody will say yeah when when i was a child this thing happened to me mm-hmm. completely unbidden it's like uh for them once they've taken off their clothes they can they can take off the masks yeah And it was just interesting to have such a kind of a bifurcated reality of that, but that there was a very accepted space in that culture where intimacy, vulnerability, dialogue, emotional presence could and would happen. And it was just understood that that is where men get to be themselves.
1: Yeah, that's for sure something in found in the research as well, which just speaks, and in my own experience as well, with my friends, um, and which just speaks to the fact that in order to get past some of the restrictions, societal pressures that men often feel, we need to alter our state through alcohol. Um, yeah, that's very telling. Um, and it's also like why like social bonds between men in the military um and you can even get into like uh, old boys culture and like firefighting like i'm kind of stereotyping here but also like there's a sense of like um there's even some research about like hazing that like which i'm very much against the the violent harmful humiliation as the source of of hazing But what that does for their bonds afterwards, it's like, if I can humiliate you, degrade you, then I know, and you're going to stick around, then I know you have my back, whether it's on the battlefield or in some high intensity. And then there's this level of of trust that's created, but it's not from emotional intimacy first. Mm -hmm. That's like, maybe at the end, maybe like, Maybe, yeah, maybe you express it, or maybe you don't. Um, and I think that's one of the tragedies about male friendships, and I always analyze this in movies that we watch, is just like, when do men express through words to each other? Are they able to do it when they're not drunk?
0: Yeah, and, and I wonder I wonder if we're really that different as men from, from teenage boys, like what you were talking about in The Mask and the kind of the swagger, the strut, because I feel like even in the neighborhood, you know, there's a measure of that. We just translate it to um, to how perfectly cut my lawn is or to who has more tools. Or, you know, I, f- I feel like we translate those same kind of boyhood swagger struggles and desire to have a mask, to impress, to not be vulnerable uh, into acceptable adult uh, forms.
1: Yeah, that if I can speak to my research, I think this could be helpful. Is that so? Think of the boys that are the most—I gonna say—most emotionally expressive, and then the boys who are the least emotionally expressive. Generally speaking, the stories of the boys who are the most emotionally uh, most emotionally expressive are stories of gaining confidence in who you are and your self identity, and the boys who are the least emotionally expressive are generally stories of boys struggling to trust people. Mm-hmm. So you got stories of trust versus stories of confidence. And hopefully as men age, that there are levels of confidence to be themselves despite social rejection, despite it not being manly to, I don't know, paint your nails, I'm not quite sure, but hopefully as we age, we can get into a more confident sense of self. I think university age is one of the times where that culminates for men and then afterwards the pressures of masculinity can decrease and also another major time is when uh, men become fathers Um, that kind of gives them an allowance to like oh I can be empathetic for another human being and it doesn't affect my sense of masculinity in fact if I'm dancing with my daughter in a dress in the park that's actually Applauded for the most part. It's not something that would have got me ridiculed throughout the rest of my life. So there's this newfound se- sense of freedom um, for many men when they become parents.
0: Yes. Yeah. Actually, I was reading to one of your posts uh, today from a few months back around that issue that isn't it good what can happen to a man as a result of having children and especially daughters? But isn't it tragic? that sometimes it has to be such a big life-changing event that gives men permission to change their narrative.
1: Yeah, there's so much research about men being like, I didn't understand what women, girls went through until I had daughters of my own. And like, I I celebrate that. But it's mind-boggling to me that you shouldn't need to have a daughter to have empathy for what, to try and, put yourself in the position of what it's like to be a girl or a woman in this world.
0: Right. Like if, like if a hundred, if hundred percent of men had mothers, at least biologically, whether or not they had a present mother figure and you know, 50% had sisters and yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. And you can look back through so many different things of like, like I personally don't care about the color of toys for boys versus girls. Like I don't care if something's pink that doesn't, or for yeah, I don't care about the color. But if you look at the types of toys that people tend to give to girls versus boys, um, the ones that boys encourages spatial awareness, encourages um, mobility, which is great things, um, and the toys and the types of toy play that girls are given tend to encourage social dynamics and emotional awareness of what other characters in their play might be thinking. And so you have this um, socialization towards understanding other people that can be found more in girls' play than in boys' play. And so I think that can be the reason why many men haven't considered as many viewpoints. Just using that story example is just one example that over time, the trajectory of uh, the average girl from the average boy could have drastic effects on how you understand other people's experiences in this world.
0: Totally. Oh yeah, for sure. That makes so much sense to me. I, I, I love this man. It's so, it's so interesting to me. Do you, I know that you've done some work in indigenous identity and do, do you feel, I, I don't, I don't know what your personal ethnic, uh, I make up identity German is German and Dutch, German and Dutch. Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, English English and English okay. <laughs> Scottish I suppose English and Scottish um, yes. via New Zealand so I don't maybe and maybe you can't speak to this but do you have you encountered any notable differences in in masculine identity within Aboriginal groups and indigeneity is there, is there aspects of Western masculinity that are fundamentally uh broken
1: um so yeah my experience with indigenous is that was a high school teacher like I worked with indigenous communities to help teachers of all subject areas um, incorporate Aboriginal indigenous perspectives into their classrooms. Um, So I'm, yeah, I would not call myself an expert, but it's a topic I care about. Um, There's, there's always going to be like the phenomenon of unhealth, the most unhealthy restrictive forms of masculinity are very much a white Eurocentric global north, the west, however you want to label it. Um, it's kind of the epitome of white masculinity. There's research with, um, with black Americans that the more ideals of, or actually, I believe the African American from Africa that come over to the states, um, the more closely they align with their African heritage, the less. Um, strain they feel about masculinity but if they adopt more to an American lifestyle then their levels of masculine strain increases Um, so talking about indigenous in Canada first nations lens um like there's just a whole different approach um in lots of first nations communities um like there was a lot of cultures that were matriarchal that women were the keepers of the land, which is why like in colonial times, um, when settlers, colonialists were trying to buy the land and they didn't have paper to do that, there's the women who were the mothers of the earth, who in a sense were stewards of the land and the Western mindset didn't understand that. And so they would just talk to the males and it would just be this breakdown in communication because women would be owned Traditionally in a Eurocentric tradition. Um, Yeah, there's, yeah, I I do know there's a lot of things percolating about specific masculinity things. Um, I would just say that Aboriginal men and women are some of the most vulnerable, I think the most vulnerable um, in Canada, as well as comparably the most vulnerable in the world. Um, If you look at suicide rates, murder rates. They're very vulnerable for a lot of different things, and there's a lot of generational trauma. Um so that, that this is really I guess what what I'm actually finding difficult is that when let's just about Canada, when Canada has literally tried to decimate uh, a culture, it is takes time to get a sense of what that culture, like a lot of indigenous friends that I have is like them finding them their own selves and their own traditions and cultures is a difficult journey for them.
0: Totally. So it's hard to, yeah, sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, they're recreating languages, they're recreating cultures, you know, there's, there's this entire erasure of a, of a generation and a half due to the school systems. Right. So it's not even like you can be like, Oh yeah, my grandfather used to do this. We don't know because Mm -hmm. everything was made illegal. Uh, So, so certainly, but even just what you said earlier—that that stoicism, the emotional repression, the not asking for help—that that those things that researchers identified are the most toxic for for masculinity—are essentially the definition of yeah global northwestern eurocentric male James Bond who shaves with a razor and does whatever he wants with whoever he wants and needs nobody. Mm-hmm. Um but actually went to boarding school and is deeply, deeply wounded.
1: Yeah. And the only thing cross-culturally, there was a massive research, was it the eighties or early nineties that was published that like found the only kind of similarities between men from a bunch of different cultures, um, was men as protectors and providers, those two messages, um, which it really comes down to how you define it. Um, because men as protectors, I think most people think physically, like, let's say them, but I could equally just say, like, like, think of my wife right now, who's breastfeeding twins, and just like, she's also a protector as well. And so it's a how are we choosing to define certain things? Um, do we label a man going to work as work? And that a mom who chooses to stay home as not work. Cause I know which one I find harder um, and it's definitely <laughs> not the former. Um, so yeah, it's like how we, our semantics, our words for things really impact how we view and our culture that prioritizes capital, consumerism. Cap, what's capital?
0: Cap, capitalism. Capitalism, <laughs> yes.
1: Thank you. Um, is going to place higher value on producers than on the reproducers in a sense. True. And females generally have that role of they're the reproducers who are producing more children for the system and men are contributing directly in the traditional model. And so there's more value placed on that in our culture.
0: Totally, which which I think even, you know, is going to play into our inability to rest as men are not having a value for recovery for sabbath for all these rhythms of life if the only thing that's been valued is output 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 right it's like a it's like an industrial masculinity machine
1: yeah just turns us up like it's these it's these i call them myths of this like heroic masculine thing which aren't in themselves bad like to want to provide for your family is a great thing financially. To want to protect your country to go to war, is I I won't say it's a great thing, but it's like- a, the, desire,
0: a, sure, the, you know, the, the desire, sure. The desire
1: to protect people is honorable. But the fact that th- there's this romanticism of like giving up your life for this ideal, like the fact that just like, you know, the saying of old men make decisions about young men dying in war, um just viewing like it's almost like viewing the the fact that it's easy for men and for myself to view my body as a weapon that like I could be fodder, like it's like it's and is I think it's a great disembodiment as well. That like
0: uh
1: I I, I wanna say something more profound and more eloquently, but I don't have the capacity right now.
0: <laughs> no, that's totally fun. And I and I my heart is right there with you. It's it's there's there's a such a dehumanization in in these systems that we've just been told this is what it means to be a man and in some ways it's kind of like men have been held up as the picture of humanity but in other ways at the same time what it means to be a man according to that definition is less than a full human being
1: yeah because so when you talk about work and rest that just reminds me of how many men when they retire, go through this huge crisis. The suicide rate is also very high at that period of time. Um, because if you, that's the type of dehumanization and fragmentation of when men view their values only in what they can do, financial provision. Um, Why after like stock markets crash, the suicide rate predominantly for men goes up as well, right. because if your value or worth is all in this one, um one specific script or gender role when that crumbles or when that shakes that's going to shake your whole identity of who you are Mm. and so I think a lot of men a lot of people in our culture but a lot of men that we're talking about now grew up never knowing themselves and what they actually want to be and what they actually are um Some people are fortunate that their jobs line up with that. And I think we can do a great job in psychology that we convince ourselves that what we're doing is what we want to do. And I think that's can be totally true for people. Um, But there's a really good anecdote from my early research that I love is that one of the toughest alpha male guys who ended up getting expelled, unfortunately. um, He was also super vulnerable in my guys group. And he said like, I love painting my little sister's nails. And all the other boys were pretty shocked. And then I asked like, had any of you else wanted to paint your sister's nails or siblings nails or your own nails? And one of the boys said something, I don't know if he knows how profound it was, but he said, I don't even know if that's something I would like to do or not because I've never even considered it before. And I think for so many boys and men they just write off anything that could be deemed as gay or feminine as something that they're not even going to approach doing. And so they don't actually know what they themselves want to do that. They've been like, Oh, I'm just going to be the athlete, be all these things. And then later on in life, be like, I love poetry or I love all that. It's really that fragmentation, that restriction that I care deeply about changing that narrative because I don't think there's anything wrong with being a guy that likes those things. I care about a guy who thinks he has to be a certain way and who thinks that other people have to be a certain way and tries to enforce that. That's what I have a problem with.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's so real. Uh, We're almost out of time, but tell us quickly about the music because I am really interested in in the music project that you're doing.
1: Well, I, I hear you. I know you love Enneagram uh, I'm a, can you guess what Enneagram number I am? i am I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. We don't know each other that well, but I often lead by vulnerability as well. You, we're such good friends right now. We know each other so well from our one conversation. Um, I'm a one wing nine. So I have, I have a lot of, uh, repressed anger actually. So it's interesting because you think of men's stereotypical anger, but that's actually not my story. My story is like, I want to make people happy. I want to keep the peace for the most part, even though I was going to increase my resentment inside. Anyway, side note is that my idea kind of came from Sleeping at Last's Enneagram album. So good. So good. And the podcast that accompanies it. And I'm in this weird space of working with boys and men um, who, the weird space is that I care tons about gender equality, about feminism, um, and not to peg this against what I'm about to say, but I also care about working with boys and men, some of whom hate feminism, and so, and that's neither here nor there. But it's something supposed to be in a spot that I, I know that working with boys and men, if you just say certain words or things, they're gonna have be a wall right sure. away.
0: It's closed door.
1: Yeah, and and. I don't know if my mission my mission in life my purpose at least what feels right for me in this time is to work with boys and men um, in that capacity and so I think a huge thing is for helping I want to so I'm creating this concept album um process of recording it that follows life from a from a boy from a man from boyhood to old age and each song represents a major theme in the masculinity research, and of course, it does draw on my own life as well. Um, but I want men to feel seen and heard. I I think that the songs, music, is a way to bypass people's cognitive defenses, mm. and I want them to feel. So, like, I want like one of the songs about the father son relationship. I want them to feel and analyze their relationship with their fathers, um, because I think that can bring healing. And one way to do that is to reflect men's own experiences through song, through music. Um, And then some songs are more of a challenge, a challenge to connect to your emotions, a challenge to connect to others, um, but also a challenge to connect to social inequalities and, and justice um, social justice in the world as well. Yeah. So the album is like really empathetic towards men, and and challenging at the same time because i really hate this either or type thing yeah i I don't know how it will be received from the boys and men that i hope it's received from i think unfortunately not unfortunately (laughs) i think a lot of uh women will like it and appreciate it
0: (laughs) and want their husbands and boyfriends to listen to it
1: (laughs) yeah which is unfortunately a reality when it comes to how men are exposed to these things, it's often through women.
0: Totally, totally. That's I think that's how men find out about my book and my work is is through women. <laughs> it is. It is yeah. what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's. I have a theme in my PhD research that's called um, that says women as safe havens, wow. um, and that is just referencing that the boys who are the least emotionally restricted, ninety percent of them it's because of a female in their lives that has helped them understand their emotions, whether it's the girlfriend or their mom primarily, mm-hmm. and that has allowed them to access their emotions with their guy friends as well. But it's initially a, a female, female in their life.
0: Wow. That is fascinating. Okay. So where...
1: you, women and girls yes, shouldn't, shouldn't be your burden, um, but it's always appreciated.
0: <laughs> like yeah,
1: I, I, I don't mean to say that tongue in cheek but it's like it's interesting Like if you talk about racism it shouldn't be the role of the black person or the indigenous person to teach a white person about racism um, that said I'm always appreciative of when I learn from black and indigenous people about racism yes. and it shouldn't be a woman um, that's necessary for men to teach men about emotions yes. but there's this weird balance of like I appreciate when that does happen though
0: definitely uh, this is so good brendan where can people uh follow you find out about the, the music project i think you've got one song that's out already and
1: yeah i have one song that you can stream i've, I've sent out two songs I'm yeah i mean i'm in discuss yeah there's a couple of different discussions with a couple with some music artists um that i might join up with which would okay. be really exciting um but my website has the links to my music as well which is remasculate.org um, and then on instagram is where i post most stuff which is re dot period uh, masculate because i want people to rethink what it means to be masculine and i want them to enlarge their definitions of it so remasculate being like vulnerability is a strong thing uh, and it's a tough thing it's way harder so i talked about maybe this wasn't in the podcast, but I talked about like right now I'm grieving the loss of a former student who died tragically. And it's like feeling that grief being in that grief is way harder than numbing it through Netflix or however I choose to numb it. Um, so I encourage I encourage your listeners to, to to feel, to do the hard work of being introspective and yeah, gender can for sure be controversial, but um I find it a valuable thing to to question and analyze. I'm all about reevaluation. Just like reevaluate things I've been
0: taught growing up and what do I think about them now? So good. Brendan, thank you for all of this. This has been a gift to me. Uh friends, make sure you go follow Brandon and check out what he's doing. Those links and everything will be in the show notes as well. Uh yeah, beautiful. Thank you, my friend. This has been delightful. Thanks so much for having me. Enjoy it. And that was Brendan Kwiatkowski. Make sure you go hit the show notes so you get uh, the link to his Instagram. Go check out his website and see the work that he's doing. Jump on his mailing list and get get a song from his forthcoming album. Friends, I should be back next week with another guest on the show. I'm excited to uh, get the podcast back online for this year. Thanks for joining me. So glad you're here. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you like to be. to be there too and I'll see you online. Grace and peace to you.